Well, thanks, Olivia. Good morning and welcome to church. My name is Rowan, one of the pastors here, and it's great to see you as we gather together and think through this big question together of what brings satisfaction in life. The pursuit for satisfaction is really one of the biggest things that we do with all of humanity, isn't it? You just got to look online and walk into the self-help section of a bookstore, and, and you'll find book after book, article after article, all claiming to hold the secret to satisfaction. The latest is this Atomic Habits book. How many people have read Atomic Habits? Show of hands. Oh, a few, like, oh, yeah, there's a number. Apparently, it's right up there on Amazon at the moment. Lots of people. 12 Rules for Life, Jordan Peterson, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, How to Win Friends and Influence People, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, The Five Love Languages. You can list them out and we're like, yes, these things help us to work out how we can find satisfaction in life. We're after satisfaction and we chase it in, in so many areas, don't we? We chase it in possessions, the things that we want, um, relationships, in education, in general life happiness. The desire for satisfaction is almost universal, isn't it? It permeates all cultures, it's stretched across all generations. It's nothing new. But, but what's interesting is that of all the generations and times and ages across history, the society that's had the most possessions the most power to make choices in life, the most opportunities before them, the highest number of social connections is you and me. It's today. Yet sociologists tell us that we are the most depressed society that has ever walked the earth. I want to hazard a guess. It's not working, is it? The places that we seek satisfaction. We coat our lives in promises of satisfaction in so many areas, in hopes and dreams, but they rarely actually deliver. And if we're honest, they can leave us empty, can't they? Either by having achieved that thing that we wanted or getting that gift we wanted at Christmas, they're now feeling like, oh, there's a new one coming out in three months. And we're like, oh, it didn't actually provide me with what I wanted. Or by coming to the devastating conclusion that we'll never have that thing that we want. It's beyond our reach, that relationship, that job, that career. The fact that humanity is still searching should tell us that something's not right in where we're looking for satisfaction. A couple of years ago, we, um, we did a survey on the university campus and, and around Auckland CBD, um, chatting to people about where they found happiness in life. I put a picture of the results up on the screen for you to see here. Uh, the biggest answer by far where we seek happiness was in family and friends at 32%. So that's a lot. If you combine that with a second place getter, love, at 16%, what you find is that 48% of people, almost half of the population, think that happiness and satisfaction are found in relationships. That's kind of the the right answer in some sort of way, isn't it? It's it's a good answer. I mean, who says, I'm going to find satisfaction by getting more stuff? Well, sometimes we find ourselves going that way, but actually it feels kind of inside of us that relationships is kind of the right answer. I want to have good relationships with my family. I want to have good relationships with my friend. And society at the moment has shifted more in that direction. Materialism is a bit on the nose, isn't it? Oh, that person, they're just living for material gain. We're in a sustainable world. We want to cut back. We want to kind of do the small living, the Marie Kondo sort of form of life. The hunt for stuff doesn't really satisfy. But our culture points us towards community and relationships. We've created a whole new type of media in the last 20 years, and we've called it social media. This idea that we can be connected and see people's faces and reels and find out what's going in their lives. 
Problem is, we curate it to make the world think that we, our lives are better than they really are. We put up the things that look good, or we use it to whinge. And so everyone will say, oh, I'm so sorry life is like that. And they reach out to us and they're like, oh, and then we, we get that relational contact. Ultimately, what we're after is relationship in some sort of form from the world around us. Basic to who we are as humans is the need for relationship. I want to put it to you that it's actually stitched into every single one of us in the way that we are made and what we desire. In the 1940s, uh, René Spitz conducted a study of the importance of social interaction on a child's development. The study followed two groups of children from the time they were born until they were several years old. Uh, The first group were raised in an orphanage, kind of like this shot, where babies were more or less cut off from human contact. They were in their cribs uh, where there was um, a single nurse had to care for, for seven children and really didn't have much interaction at all. They were looked after with food and water and changed and clothed and that was it. The second group of people uh, were babies that were raised in a nursery in prison where their mothers were incarcerated. Now, they didn't put the kids in prison, they didn't do that, but their mothers were there, they had the babies and so they're like, well, this is what we want to do, we want to allow these mothers to have their children and the mothers were allowed to give the babies all the care and affection that they wanted every day. The babies were able to see one another and have interaction with, with one another and the prison staff throughout the day. By the time the babies were one year old, the motor skills and intellectual performance of those read in the orphanage lagged badly behind those read in the prison nursery. The orphanage babies were also less curious, less playful, and more subject to infections because they did not have social contact. During the second and third years of life, the children being raised by their mothers in prison walked and talked confidently. They showed the normal kind of developmental signs that children raised in a normal family would have. But of the 26 children raised in the orphanage, only two could walk and manage to say any words at all. It's sad, isn't it, that that would happen? But it shows us how vital relationships are to human thriving. They help us to thrive. I mean, Tom Hanks showed us that in, when he was deprived of relationships in the, in the movie Castaway, right? Has anyone seen that movie Castaway? Okay, good. Now, Castaway, four years stranded on his own. Imagine what that movie would have been like if he hadn't invented Wilson. It would have just been all in his head. It would have been no dialogue at all. We had to invent someone so we could have these discussions and so that we could watch a movie because it would have been unbearable, even more boring than it already was if it was just him on his own. I heard of another study that um, talked about the effects of relationships on life and life expectancy. It found that committing to a lifelong relationship adds 17 years to your life if you're a man. Um, the sad news is if you're a woman, there's no game. <laughs> so guys, that's good for you. Women, ah, you can take it or leave it. That's the reality. <laughs> but if the women increase their circle of female friends, they too had a longer life expectancy. There's a theme here. Women are kind of, what? Better at relationships generally than guys are. Um, apparently I heard as well, if you marry an older man, his life expectancy goes more, is increased. But unfortunately, yours has decreased. But um, there you go. There's a reality of these. Now, this is not peer-reviewed research, the last one at all, because we don't need to be convinced, do we, that we need relationships. When we turn to the Bible, God's Word to us, we find that relationships are central to who we are as humans because we're made 
from a relational God. That's the reason why it's stitched into the fabric of the world around us, that we are made in God's image by a God who wants to relate with us, who has relationship in and of himself within the Trinity. And he makes us for relationships with him, for his world, and and to, to rule the creation that he's put us in. We are like this, not because of just some random chance. We are like this because God made us this way. As we open up to the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer of Ecclesiastes comes to the preliminary conclusion that because life is short and death is its end, the best thing you can do is make the most of your relationships. Look at Ecclesiastes 9, verse 9 with me. It's on the screen. He says this, Enjoy life with the wife you love all the days of your fleeting life, for that is your portion in life and in your struggle under the sun. He recognizes here that really... While relationships are good, enjoy life with your wife, but they're also a struggle. Relationships can also cause us the greatest amount of pain and hurt, can't they? Just ask anyone who's divorced their spouse or experienced the loss of a loved one. The other problem with relationships is we we end up putting too much weight on them if we try and seek our satisfaction in them. You know the person who gets married? We've all got that person in our mind, that one that got married and then cuts off all other relationships with others around them because they're so in love with their spouse. You don't get to see them anymore. They're not there and they kind of just have this little internal me and her thing or her and me thing, whichever way around it is. Uh, And what happens is we end up putting so much weight on that relationship to provide everything that we need that the relationship can't handle it. It can't stand the weight, the expectations, the smothering. It just crushes the relationship. And usually those relationships do not last because we're trying to find satisfaction in them. See, relationships are a good answer to the question of where we find satisfaction in life. But they're not the whole answer. They're a good answer, but they're not the whole answer. I want you to come back with me to the first century AD, to the part of the Bible that Olivia just read for us, where we meet a woman whose life seemed to be defined by the search for satisfaction, particularly in relationships. What's different about this woman is that she finds something that changes the way she thinks about satisfaction and life, and it changes, well, eternity for her. Jesus is on his way from Galilee to Judea, and he stops at this well where he meets this woman. And now Jesus is a Jew, and this woman is a Samaritan, and they really don't get on. It's like the Montagues and the Capulets, if you're a Shakespeare fan. They just don't talk. It's like, whoa, I've come across this person from the wrong end of town. I don't want to be near them. They used to have lots of different views in the way they treated God. Um, Some Jews even used to say that if you were to look at a Samaritan, it would make you unclean. You're like, oh, I can't go near them, right? But Jesus is thirsty, so he asks this woman for a drink. Now, at first, her response is pretty cold. She basically says, you shouldn't be talking to me. Right? It's this Jew-Samaritan thing coming up. They exchange some words that we'll come back to in a moment. And then we see what this woman starts to find her satisfaction in. Look with me at verse 16. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. Jesus is making it blatantly clear here. He's not interested in a romantic relationship with this woman. But that's not all he's doing. He's gently letting her know at this point that he knows the truth and what he says is the truth. She replies in verse 17, I don't have a husband. You have correctly said I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. What we see in each interaction with this person in history called Jesus is that he knows more than he should. He has a view into our lives and our hearts more than you would expect anyone else to. It's like... 
He knows us like he made us. And what we see throughout the Bible is that well, Jesus makes this claim of who he is, and we're going to see it in this passage a little later, that he knows what's going on in all of our lives, and he knows us, and he knows what's good for, for us. So often I think when it comes to this idea of God, we put him off and we think, ah, you know, I'll deal with that later, or you can't really be sure, so I'm just going to live my life my way and find satisfaction my own way. But the reality is it never ends well. It ends up in a big, long line of broken relationships, broken promises, broken hopes. And what we see here is God looks at this woman, Jesus looks at this woman, and recognizes her brokenness. He knows her brokenness and he calls it out. And that shows us you can't hide your brokenness from God. You can't think you'll be able to get by on half-truths. He sees all, he knows all, he knows you. There are no dark corners kept from his sight, no skeleton in the closets that he hasn't seen or isn't aware of, no wounds that you've experienced that he does not know about. The great thing when you meet the person of Jesus so we don't need to cover up our mistakes and failings, trying to pretend that we're, we're better, trying to pretend that we have life together, to put forward the Insta life, the TikTok real that'll look amazing for the world around us. But we can come to him as we are, because he sees us as we are. And we don't need to keep adding more and more in. A number of years ago, I started doing a little bit more cooking in our household uh, for a number of reasons, partly so I should. I eat the food here as well. And I wanted to try and see that you know, Sarah didn't always do the cooking in our place and also want to be a good example for our kids so they could learn how to cook well. I'd always been pretty good at cooking. I was great on those staples like two-minute noodles, really good on those, could get them happening. Uh, baked beans on toast, it's got carb, it's got protein, it's got some nice sugary sauce, everything that you need, I could do those, had them down pat. But a few years ago, I started to experiment by not following a recipe and kind of making up my own sauces in the incredibly complex culinary delight called stir fries, right? which is hard for me, but generally people think is reasonably easy. So I thought, okay, I'll get, the, I'll get, I'll get meat and you've got veggies and you chop up the meat and you put it in and I thought, I'll, I'll make my own sauce. And so I started to put some things in you know, and then tasted it. It was just really bland. I'm like, oh, that's no good. So I went to the pantry, found some more ingredients, got some honey. I thought, oh yeah, there's honey soy, that's good. I'll just whack some honey in. So I put some honey in there, and then I'm like, I think Asian places have oyster sauce. I'll put some oyster sauce in as well, and added that. And then I found lime juice in a bottle, and I'm like, yeah, you know, just a bit of that, just that'll add some zing. And then I tasted it, it still kind of just wasn't right. And I'm like, I know, honey soy. I've forgotten the basic ingredient of Asian stir-fry soy. So then I just put in like a cup of soy sauce. Why are you laughing? That's not funny. <laughs> so then it was way too salty, which is why you all laughed. And so what do you do to fix the saltiness? Sugar. So I just put some more sugar in and thought, this is going to be great. This is going to be an amazing kind of dish together. And then ate it. It was edible just, but um, the whole thing was pretty much a mess. And it struck me, you know, that this is kind of like what we do with life and relationships, isn't it? We start out and things go well, we put in the ingredients that we know are core, but that just feels a bit bland and we think we know what's right in life. And so we seek other things and other relationships to make it a bit better and we add them on, another partner, another friend. But it doesn't turn out right, it doesn't bring satisfaction in the way that we think it will and what we leave behind is a train wreck of pain and hurt and dissatisfaction. And that was the story of this woman's life. Through each crack and insufficiency she found in herself, she added more. Not one husband, but five. And the man she was with was not even her husband. 
There are some things in life that when you add more of them, it's better. Husbands is not one of those things. It is not. Psychologists keep telling us that one of the keys to happiness are deep, strong and stable relationships. But the problem is even the best relationships have points where they fail. Points where we let one another down. Points where we hurt each other. Points that don't satisfy. And if we stand on our rights to say, I demand to be satisfied by this relationship, we're just going to end up exactly like this woman. Putting band-aid over band-aid over band-aid of broken relationships. And they'll line up and get harder and harder and harder. For this woman, she'd endured a lineup of dysfunctional and broken relationships that left her as an outcast and empty and thirsty for satisfaction. As she arrived at that well that day, thirsty because she had to wait till the middle of the day, in the middle of the heat, her dry mouth wasn't her only problem. Even her five husbands and her present de facto were only symptoms of the problem that she had. In the section we skipped over before, we hear why this woman was so interested in what Jesus had to say, why she listened to him. He said to her, chapter 4, verse 10, If you knew the gift of God, and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. If you walked up to someone in the street, you know, at, at the dairy on the corner, and they came in, and, and you said, I just want my Coke, and then they said, if you knew the gift of God... Right? And who's saying to you, give me your Coke? You'd, you'd ask him and he'd give you living water. You'd be like, I'm out of here. Like, this guy is crazy. What is going on in this instance? And she kind of responds in a similar way. Look at verse 11. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket. Where are you going to get this living water from? And the well is really deep. Where are you going to get this living water? You can imagine what she's thinking. Who is this crazy guy? And then she remembers some of the history of the well in verse 12. You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. See, this well that Jesus is at has a history. It's not just some random well anywhere. It's of a distant relative of Jesus, actually, called Jacob. And he built it long ago. And the other name that Jacob was known by was Israel. He was the father of Israel. He was the father of the Jews. So basically, this was an incredibly important well. It brought water to generations of people and their livestock. It brought satisfaction from this one whom God blessed for the people of Israel. Basically, she's saying to Jesus, who do you think you are? You think you are better than Jacob, the father of the Israelites, the father of all of God's promises. That's a pretty big claim, right? Do you really think you could provide something better than this? But listen to Jesus' reply in verse 13. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again, pointing to the well. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Let me read that again. The water I give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. What Jesus offers here isn't just some temporary solution to quench this woman's thirst. Nor is it even a way to have just a better relationship, a better way to live with the, with the men in her life so it might be lasting and more wholesome. Jesus is offering to quench the ultimate dissatisfaction in life. Death itself. Every experience we chase after. Every relationship we long to have or, or invest into, every position in the workplace, every friend, every possession in the world, all of them come to their ultimate end 
in death, don't they? Death robs us of satisfaction. That's why we've got such a preoccupation to get the best life now. YOLO, you only live once, right? Because if this life is all we have, then we want to just enjoy the wife of your youth in your days under the sun, and that's it. If death is the end. But Jesus comes and flips the whole search for satisfaction on its head. He claims to bring eternal life and offer a relationship with the maker, with our maker. Verse 15, Sir, the woman said to him, Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. She wants this kind of, I want to I not come to the well anymore, Jesus. Can you fix that? That's kind of the biggest issue in my life right now. She thinks Jesus is talking about the literal water. She misses the significance of who Jesus is and what he's offering to her. As we seek out satisfaction in life, as we look for relationships that will provide us with what we need, and we think, yes, I want to come to God so that I might know how to have better relationships in this life. That's a good thing, and God can help us think through that. But if we do that and that alone, we miss the significance of what God is saying to us, of where we find satisfaction and relationship that lasts forever. So in order to help this woman understand the significance of what he's saying, that's when he then tells more of who he is and shows this woman that he knows all of her previous relationships. He highlights she's trying to find satisfaction in the wrong places and shows her where she can find true satisfaction. See, relationships, as good as they can be, are only a foretaste of the one relationship you and I were made for. You were made for a relationship with a God who made you. To live forever where death is not the end. Death is so horrific, isn't it? So terrible, so wrong, so unnatural. We say it's part of the natural cycle of life, but it hurts so much and is so abrupt and brings such an end. You were not made for death. We were made to experience relationship with God and with one another forever. And when Jesus steps onto the world scene, he comes bringing that satisfaction to shape the way we think about relationships here and now, and to help us to see the true relationship that will provide life forever. He, he comes and speaks to this woman and rescues her from her own slavery, not just from loneliness, but from death. So The Bible tells us the reason that we die is because we reject the God who gives us life. We say, God, oh, no offense, oh, I just don't want you in my life. I'm going to find satisfaction my own way. I'm going to live my life my own way without you. But like I said earlier, we can't hide our lives from God. He sees all like he does with this woman. And what Jesus is, does is he steps onto the world stage, lays down his life so that we might take on his. He takes the penalty for our rebellion against God so that we can stand forgiven and our relationship with God restored. This woman's need was not to be in the arms of a perfect bachelor but of the holy God who made her and loves her and died for her. After this woman realizes that Jesus knows all about her life, she, she's amazed. But she thinks she can get relationship with God on her own terms. And sometimes we think that way about God too. We're amazed by what he does. or We might think, oh, there's a God out there and I want to reach out to him, but I'm going to do it my way. Look at verse 19. Sir, the woman replied, I see you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is Jerusalem. Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. 
You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. Now, as a Samaritan, she had her own ways to worship God, not the ways that God had spoken through his people, the Jews. And Jesus is clear here. Relationship with God is the relationship we need. And that relationship, Jesus says to the woman, only comes from God's people, the Jews. It doesn't come from Muhammad, nor from Buddha or Confucius. It doesn't come from passion or family or friends or materialism or or self-service or being kind. Relationship with God comes through one and one only, Jesus. The true Jew who came and laid down his life for us. What Jesus said here was revolutionary. A day was coming when the long drawn out arguments between these two people groups, the Jews and the Samaritans, was about to become irrelevant because they would meet God in the flesh. She had met God in the flesh. True worship has always been on God's terms. If he made you and me, if he he created us and and made the world that we live in, then don't you think he knows the best way to live in the world? Don't you think it's a little arrogant when we come along and go, oh, no offense, God, I think I know how to live better in the world that you made than you do, who created it with a word and sustains it with your breath. Now, as this woman meets Jesus, she comes face to face with God. There's not a building or a part of a building, not a location, a country, a town, a thing to say, a religious sect that will bring you into the presence of God other than meeting Jesus. The question here is not where you worship, but who you worship. Now, we come to God in so many different ways. But what we see here is Jesus is calling this woman to come to God on God's terms. Because he and he alone provide satisfaction. And he and he alone is the one who would die in our place and rise again. On that day, this Samaritan woman had come face to face with God. Look at verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah, this is God's promised king. She knew her kind of um, Jewish history. I know the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then this is what Jesus says. Verse 26. I, the one speaking to you, am he. I don't know where you're at with satisfaction and God in your life today. I don't know what you think of Jesus or you know, what you think about life after death, if that exists. But no matter what you think, today all of us have heard the words of Jesus. We've come face to face with him himself. And what we hear from him is that satisfaction and life is not found in relationships with one another, but in right relationship with him. I, the one speaking to you, am he, Jesus says. I want to encourage you today, if you don't yet know Jesus, if you've not put your life in his hands and recognize the joy of knowing our rebellion against God is is dealt with and that we can call God our father and that, that death is not our end, I want to plead with you, come and find true satisfaction in the place that will alone give it in Jesus. Put aside trying to find satisfaction by covering up the cracks and pasting all these different things into the mix to try and make life better. Instead, expose the realities of our brokenness, that we don't have life together, that relationships fail, that possessions don't deliver, and come to the God who has shown us his love by laying down his life for us and offering us forgiveness and life that does not end. History records that for this event, one group of people were incredibly changed. 
Something incredible happened. This woman went back to her Samaritan families and she told everyone she came across. Look what happened in verse 39. John 4, 39. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of what the woman said when she testified, he told me everything I ever did. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said since we have heard for ourselves and know this really is the saviour of the world. If you're here today and you've not checked out Jesus, if you've not found out on for yourself and looked at his claims and weighed them up, I want to say, come and do that. We have something called Explaining Christianity. It's starting on the 31st of January. It's a four, four weeks, um, just one night a week. It's got food around it. And it's an opportunity to ask questions about who Jesus is and see the claims of the Bible. To actually work out if Jesus is who he claims to be. Because if he is, I can tell you satisfaction is found nowhere else in this world. And life that lasts forever is found in him. I want to encourage you all to stop walking around in life, as I, as I say this to myself, and trying to find satisfaction by covering over all of our kind of failings and our dissatisfaction and pretend that we've got life sorted and come to the one who provides life to the full in Jesus. For those of you who have come to Jesus, who do, who do trust in him as your king, who've tasted this living water of, of his forgiveness at the cross, who know who he is, the temptation for us is to Get distracted with the other things of life, isn't it? We slide back into living for life's precious moments. Insta snaps of our lunch or time spent wondering where that person got their possessions from or what investments they undertook. And we can so easily just forget how amazing it is that God himself has come and revealed himself to us and given us life and forgiveness and hope. Jesus came from the Father's right hand. The creator became part of his creation and allowed those he created to nail him to a cross so that you could be forgiven and have life that lasts forever. Life is not about getting the most satisfaction here and now, wringing the most we can out of it to, as if this life is it, because there is an eternity to come for those who trust in Jesus. Life now is about recognizing the true and lasting satisfaction found in Jesus and Him alone. Life beyond death. And pointing people to that end. What an amazing role we have of marveling in the satisfaction that God has given us at the cross. Let me ask you today, what is it that you're living for? What relationships are you trying to put too much weight on? Is it family, wanting your family to be the best it, it could be? And, Putting it into children, just go, I've got, my, I've got to raise my children to be amazing. They've got to have everything sorted and all go to Harvard or wherever it is. Is it trying to restore the relationships within a broken family or just trying to get through? Is it relationships with the world around you, your career and what others think of you? Is it your relationship with rest and a holiday? <laughs> Jesus says to us all, like he says to that woman, I know what you are like. I know your brokenness. Stop mucking around in this life with things that won't last and spend your life in all its brokenness, trusting in what I have done for you, in the perfect life I'm giving you, the life that truly quenches our thirst for satisfaction. I encourage you today to come to Jesus and see in him satisfaction that lasts forever. Let's pray together and ask God to see that as a reality in the way that we live. Lord God, we come to you today with so many different things going on in our lives and in our world. So many places we are 
I guess, trying to patch up our lives to make things look good, to make things feel good. We ask that today as we've heard Jesus' words, that you would convict us of our sin and brokenness. You know what we are really like. You know the brokennesses that we're experiencing, the hardships that we go through. You know the turmoil many of us are facing. But we ask that you'd fix our eyes on Jesus and in him see him as he really is, the one who offers forgiveness, life that does not end, and satisfaction, relationship with you. We ask that you might help us to live with people who trust him, who make him our king, not trying to get the most out of every second now, but recognizing that serving Jesus is what makes life worth living. Today, Lord, would you show us clearly through your word and by your spirit how much Jesus brings satisfaction and help us to live for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.